And I'm going to be looking at some of the claims that Jesus made about himself. Um, But before I want to do that, I'd like to make some claims about myself. Uh, Just, you know, so you can get to know me a bit better and we can have a, you know, look at how we verify claims. So three claims about myself, just to get you all rolling. One, I'm a student pastor here at King's Church Edinburgh. Two, I'm a film critic. And three, I am the strongest man in Edinburgh. Like, not emotionally, like physically the strongest man in Edinburgh. Um, One of those claims is different from the other two claims. One is kind of outrageous, to be honest. Um, And you might immediately be thinking, well, I want to verify that. I want to check that he's right. The first two claims are fairly easy to check out. You know, uh, I am the student pastor here at King's. Ask a student that's been here a while or one of the elders here that asked me to do that. I even have a contract that says student pastor on it. Easy to verify. I've got the documentation. Film critic, a little harder because a lot of people call themselves film critics, but maybe they just like wrote for the journal once, like a review of Lincoln or something, or they're a blogger. Um, but if you, if you listen to uh, Radio Scotland this Thursday just gone, you would have heard me on the radio reviewing the new Reese Witherspoon film. So... That one is, again, easy to verify. Um, I am the strongest man in Edinburgh. Well, we can verify that, too, whether it's true or not. Um, So, Joshua, could you join me on stage quickly, please? (laughs) Just hop up this side. Joshua and I are going to arm wrestle. Um, I promise I'm going to try here. And it's... (laughs) It's a good job I'm not a man with a lot of pride in my physical strength, but let's go. Right, bring it on. You see, this claim... Right, three, two, one, go. (laughs) See, this claim... (laughs) Thank you, Joshua. Now, I just... I would hazard a guess that most people in this room could beat me in an arm wrestle. I just picked Joshua because... This outrageous claim falls apart under the smallest bit of scrutiny. And when you hear outrageous claims, the thing that you want to do is to verify them and to put them to the test. See, is there evidence in his life that he is actually the strongest man in Edinburgh? Turns out I'm not. Um, That's a shock to the system. Jesus made a lot of claims about himself and they are worthy of far more scrutiny than the claims that I make about myself because a billion people around the world believe them uh, and several more people think they know what Jesus said. Um, It's essential that we analyse the words of Jesus, particularly what he said about himself, because, because he's perhaps the most influential figure that ever lived and there's a whole lot of misinformation about him. Andy Bannister Uh, spoke at church this morning and he said you have to decide for yourself whether you believe in the claims of Jesus the problem is a lot of people think that Jesus was just a good moral teacher uh, or just a almost like a self-help coach that was just there to be like hey guys can we all come on guys let's just all be nice Douglas Adams uh, in the introduction to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy gives like a snappy overview of the history of the world and In one sentence, he dismisses Jesus by saying, And then, one Thursday, nearly 2,000 years after one man had been nailed to a tree, for saying how great it would be to be nice to people for a change. That's his 
view of Jesus, and you'll find that a lot of people think that about Jesus. Perhaps you do, that he was just a nice man that told people to be nice to one another. But actually, we're going to see that the claims of Jesus were far more extravagant than that. And he had a view of himself that was far greater than, I'm just here to tell everyone to be nice. If his claims were true, then it changes everything, and we all owe him our worship. And if they're not, then perhaps he was just a charlatan. Every claim that Jesus made about himself demands a response. He said things like, I have overcome the world, or whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life, or I am the bread of life. These aren't the instructions of a good moral teacher. They're the words of someone declaring themselves to be the Messiah. And so we need to work out, and what we're going to do over the next while is to work out whether these claims hold any weight. Is he just someone saying, I'm the strongest person? And then the first like, century AD equivalent of Joshua is waiting around the corner being like, nah, mate. Obviously, I'm standing here because I believe that they were true. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to analyze three of his biggest claims. And what I want you to think about while I'm going through these claims that Jesus said is, who do you think Jesus is? This applies if you're a Christian as well, because we need to have a right theology of Jesus. A right theology of Jesus leads us to worship. It leads us to a greater understanding of God and his love for us. And where better place to get a right theology of Jesus than from Jesus himself? So I'm going to analyze three claims um, and look at how they're backed up and how we should respond to it. So claim one. Jesus said, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. So this is not a softball claim from Jesus. He's saying to the Jewish leaders of the day, your holy scriptures, we'd call it the Old Testament now, but they would have called it the Tanakh, they are all about me. That's a huge claim. He's saying the whole of the Old Testament bears witness to me. Now, I, the most I can claim is that I feature in two books, um, but that's just because my mum happens to be a writer, and she wrote one book about adopting my brother, and there's a photo of me in my pyjamas as a two-year-old in that book. She also wrote a very 90s book about parenting, and um, I think, I, I've not dared to read it, but I'm fairly sure I'm in that as well. Um, you, other people could claim that things have been written about them as well. Uh, Joseph Stalin could look at Animal Farm and be like, this book's about me. Bonnie Vare's poor ex-girlfriend could look at 4Emma forever ago and be like, that's about me. But Jesus is saying something totally different here. He's saying that hundreds of years worth of texts from several disparate authors um, in several different contexts are all pointing towards me. And what he means by that is that the Old Testament is full of these hints of this figure called the Messiah, these promises that are building up to this one guy who is going to restore the relationship between God and his people, who's going to be a greater king than anyone in the Old Testament, a greater leader than anyone in the Old Testament, a greater prophet. And then when we get to the life of Jesus, as described in the four Gospels, 
we repeatedly see this phrase, this happens to fulfill. This happens to fulfill. Particularly in Matthew, you'll, you'll see that phrase over and over again. And what the New Testament writers are doing is they're saying, look back there, remember this bit in the scriptures that you know, that was about Jesus. So uh, a classic example would be when Jesus entered Jerusalem, he rode on a donkey, which seemed like an odd choice, but that was to fulfill a scripture in Zechariah that says, see, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. Now you might think, well, sure, he probably knew that scripture. He could have chosen to ride on a donkey in order to play the part. But what about this one? When he was on the cross, the soldiers didn't break his legs as they did with the two criminals that were being executed either side of him. That was how they sped up the execution. They didn't do that with Jesus. They pierced his side with a spear. He had no say over that. He was... He was being executed. He had no control over how it happened. But he was pierced instead of his legs being broken. And that fulfills another part of Zechariah that says, they will look on me, the one they have pierced. And it also fulfills uh, a prophetic psalm that says, he protects all his bones, not one of them will be broken. But here's the really exciting thing about this bit as well. Because Jesus' bones weren't broken, He's also fulfilling the requirements that were laid out for sacrificial lambs. When when, uh, the people of Israel sacrificed lambs in order to atone for sins, there were many instructions, like, they must be without blemish, and you cannot break any of their bones. And because Jesus' bones weren't broken, he's fulfilling the requirements of a sacrificial lamb. There are many more throughout the Old Testament. Daniel, for instance, predicted that the Messiah would arrive before the destruction of the Second Temple, which took place in around 66 AD. Micah said that they would be born in Israel, particularly uh, Bethlehem. And Isaiah said that he would be tortured and executed. Think of it like a forensic drawing where uh, someone is describing this figure of the Messiah to a forensic artist who has never seen them but has to draw it down. Apart from each person describing it, only has one or two details. He'll look like this. This is when he'll come. And the forensic artist is listening to all of these and drawing it. And over the course of the Old Testament, we get this drawing of someone that looks exactly like Jesus and has a character and life exactly like Jesus. So I want to challenge you. How can such a disparate collection of books, poems, plays, uh, historical texts, How can they all end up cohering by pointing towards this one person in really specific ways? And Christians, I want to encourage you to read the Old Testament in this way. If you've been coming along to Kings a while, you'll have often heard the preachers refer to Old Testament characters and be like, but Jesus was a better version of this. Like uh, Moses led his people out of slavery in Egypt, but Jesus leads all people out of spiritual slavery into spiritual freedom. That's called typology where you look at Old Testament figures as a type of Christ. And you can do that the whole way through the Old Testament, even down to two goats in Leviticus being a type of Christ. So that's the first claim. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. That kind of witness is like a forensic drawing that ends up looking exactly like Jesus. Claim two, getting more controversial. I and the Father are one. 
So I've heard a lot of people tell me before, oh, Jesus never claimed to be God. That's something that Christians made up about 300, 400 years afterwards. Here he's saying, I and the Father are one. And we know that he's referring to God with the Father, because if you think of something as simple as the Lord's Prayer, our Father, he refers to God as the Father the whole way through. And here he's saying, I and the Father are one. This is outrageous. Here is a man saying, I am one with God. I am God. But elsewhere in uh, the Gospels, he also says how he has been sent from the Father, how he's doing the will of the Father. And perhaps one way to think about this, although there's no complete picture to help with this, but one way to think about it is like the sun and the light from the sun. You cannot really think of one without the other. You can't think of the light of the sun without the sun. They are together in unity, but one has been sent and brings light to the whole world. But they're sort of interchangeable, but also separate. That's a rather convoluted way of thinking about Jesus being sent from the Father, but also being one with the Father. But what it boils down to is this. Jesus is making a claim to divinity here. He is saying that he is not just human, he is also God. And if anyone but Jesus said this, it would be utterly insane. Even the best person at King's Church, you know, the, perhaps the one that is always jumping into empty practical team slots, they help out with the, um, the homeless shelter that we do here over winter, and they probably bring an excess of food for every basics bank as well. These really good people that just are inspirational to you. If they would say, well, it's because I'm God, that claim would fall apart in an instant because you would be able to see, just look back in the past week. You might look at me up here on the stage and think, well, you must be pretty good if, if you're up on the stage. But if you were to look back in like a week of my life, you'd see um, pride, you'd see laziness, and if those are too abstract as sins for you, I, I don't even honor my mother and father particularly well, and that's one of the Ten Commandments. Right? That's one of the ten big ones. Any human claiming that they are God would fall apart under just a little bit of knowledge of who God is and a little bit of knowledge of who that person is. But Jesus knows this, and he says, do not believe me unless I do the works of the Father. He's saying, I'm claiming to be the one with the Father, and the way that you can know that is that I'm doing the works of the Father. My life should look like what it would look like if God was human on earth. We often end up looking like our fathers. Um, Here's a picture of me with my dad in the Alps. Um, I don't look so much like him. Um, He was never able to grow a beard. Um, (laughs) But character-wise... I'm slowly becoming more and more like him. As a child, I was um, very dramatic, and I loved writing, and I had a fierce imagination. And people that know me are probably saying, you're still like that, Nathaniel, (laughs) which is true. My mum's influence is very, very strong. But I've become more like my father in recent years. I didn't like hiking, but that is me on a hiking trip with my dad. Um, uh, I've grown a lot taller and gain this like rake-like physique because of my dad. And 
Uh, I've also started being entertained by really boring things. So, like, one thing that me and my dad like to do, and this is 100% serious, is we'll just be sitting in the lounge and we'll have this website open that's called, like, Distance Calculator or something, and we'll be like, how far is it between Paramaribo and Vilnius? And then we have to... Uh, it's about 5,500 miles, for those who are interested. I am. Um, <laughs> and at some point in my life, I've just become interested in working out distances on maps between capital cities. I don't know why. Because we all end up looking like our dads in some way. But Jesus' claim, again, is going much further than that. He's not saying, oh, I just have a few characteristics of my heavenly dad. He's saying, I'm the actual embodiment of God's will and his character playing out on earth. And how on earth do you verify that? How do you verify a claim like that? Well, what we do is we look at what we know about the character of God. And in the Old Testament, he's given lots and lots of names that talk about elements of his character. He's called Jehovah Jireh, the Lord provides. And one of the most famous stories about Jesus is him feeding 5,000 people with just five loaves and two fishes. But then only a couple of chapters later, his disciples seem to have forgotten that, and he feeds 4,000 people as if to restate the point. I provide. I am a provider. He's known as Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals. And the vast majority of Jesus' ministry was spent healing people. He, he healed the internal bleeding of a woman that had happened for years. He made blind eyes see. He made lame men walk. And that's documented in all four of the Gospels. God is described as Jehovah Hashafet, the Lord, my judge. And Jesus actually does come to judge. He talks about how he'll judge at the end of time. But also he has a keen sense of justice. He overturns uh, the tables of money lenders in the temple because he doesn't want the house of God being corrupted by money. He calls out the leaders of the day for their self-righteousness. And he's uncompromising about sin, actually. He will up front say that sin is terrible and God abhors it. And God in the Old Testament is also known as the Lord, my Savior. And I'll explain why Jesus fulfills that in a bit. So you see the characteristics of God play out in the life of Jesus. And the Gospels say that, you know, he was entirely without sin. But the real, the real, like, killer blow to his claim, not killer blow, that would be the opposite. The real, like, the greatest defense he has for his claim that he is God is that he resurrected from the dead. That is the thing that trumps all of his other uh, actions. His, his life showed the characteristics of God. His resurrection from the dead showed the power of God. He defeated even death. And if you're here and you're not a Christian and you're like, okay, here's where you've lost me. People don't come back from the dead. I want you to consider three facts that all historians agree on. One, there was an empty tomb. And we know there was an empty tomb because even the enemies of, even Jesus' enemies of the day said that there was an empty tomb. Uh, you'd think if there wasn't an empty tomb, the people wanting to quash Christianity could be like, 
no, there's his body. But you, there are contemporary historical accounts of the time saying the tomb was empty. How do we account for this? There was no shrine to Jesus. Um, a lot of times people would know where the bones of saints were, but there was no shrine. Uh, there was no parade of his body. The, the second thing you need to consider is the witness of his disciples. Uh, over 500 people saw the resurrected Christ um, and they claimed this to their death because Christians were persecuted for the first two or 300 years, something like that. I'm looking at a church historian, but <laughs> they, were, they were persecuted for quite a while. Um, and all but one of Jesus' disciples died, uh, were, were executed for saying that they saw the resurrected Christ. It, it probably couldn't have been a hallucination because, um, as I've just said, there was an empty tomb. And it's hard to believe that they were lying when so many people came together to say, we have seen the resurrected Christ, and they were willing to die for that. And then the third thing is that the church was established swiftly and in the face of phenomenal persecution. Christians were being burned alive. Um, They were being killed for entertainment. But somehow the church spread incredibly rapidly and peacefully throughout um, the first century world. Could this have happened based on over 500 people coming together for the same lie or the same hallucination? I suppose it's possible, but that, to me, takes a greater leap of faith. Those are three facts you have to contend with. And obviously I'm here because I believe that Jesus was the resurrection. But I would be really intrigued. Maybe even come and chat to me afterwards. How do you uh, reckon with the empty tomb, the witness of the disciples, and the swift establishment of the church? Um, That argument is based on a much longer one. I had to condense it for time. I'm going to put a link to it in um, the weekly email. Uh, But I, I think that everybody needs to contend with these claims of a resurrected Christ. Because if Christ did come back from the dead, then that is... That proves once and for all that Jesus' claims about being one with the Father were true. Jesus describes himself as God, and everything we know points to this as true. So how do you account for it? And Christians here, have you fully reckoned with the divinity of Christ? Do you think of Jesus just as some guy? Or are you aware of him as fully God? And then there's the third claim, the one that Andy majored on this morning, if you were here for that, where Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Andy talked a bit about this this morning, but for those who weren't there, he talks about how Jesus basically ruled out all other religions with this one statement. No one comes to the Father, no one gets to God except through Jesus. He's saying, I am the way to heaven. I am the truth about God. I am eternal life. This is a claim of exclusivity, and it's absolute. So much for the whole stereotype of Jesus just telling people to be nice. 
He's saying, you can only get to God through me. And this claim, by the way, is not the only time Jesus made statements like this. Here are some more. He said, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Whoever drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is saying that he has the key to life, to a relationship with God. Because the Bible tells us that we were cut off from God through our own rebellion, pretty much on day one. We were built to be in relationship with God, and almost straight away we decided to go our own way. And then pretty much on day two, someone committed murder rather than following the will of God, because we're so desperate to be independent. But the problem is, when we cut ourselves off from God, and that's what Christians call sinning, when we decide we're going to do things our way, not God's way, we cut ourselves off from the source of life. And when you cut yourself off from life, the result is death. It would be like if you just decided to stop drinking and eating. You would not last long. We've cut ourselves off from the source of life. And God, from the start, said, if you do this, you will die. And this is just a problem that has existed throughout all of humanity. But God was like, no, I've, I've got a way if you sacrifice animals, if you sacrifice these unblemished lambs then they'll actually take on that death for you and you can be restored to me. But humans kept rebelling and those sacrifices were only temporary. So he sent his son, Jesus, as the ultimate sacrifice. And if anyone puts their faith in Jesus and his sacrifice, his death and his resurrection, Jesus' death will cover you and you will have your relationship with God restored. But it can only be through that because Anything else is just dead people trying to bring themselves back to life. It has to be through the source of life, through the one who defeated death, that we can have our relationship with God restored. That's the theology of it, but just look at our experience. We've tried so many other ways throughout history to, to try and compensate for what we're missing from the fact that we're cut off from God. We've tried to make life better through politics, which only ever gets us so far until humans corrupt it. We've tried it through an idea of nation where, oh, if I, you know, if I stand up for my country, then maybe things will be better. But that generally leads to isolationism, violence, racism. We've tried it through money, but one of the richest bands in the world sang, Money Can't Buy You Love. Today, I'd say the, th- the way we try it most is individualism. Look inside you. Find, find your best self and be that. Forget about everyone else. You have to look out for number one. But I look around and I don't see a society that's living in this utopia where everyone's happy because we're all being our best selves. I see us as being sadder and more confused than ever. Society calls you to live for yourself. Jesus calls you to live for something outside of yourself. I think we've tried society's way and it doesn't work, which to me just further confirms that Jesus' claim, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I don't see another alternative here. I'm looking at the one who died and came back to life and says, I can give you that eternal life. And there's evidence in the lives of the Christians here in the room, in my life, 
Or look at the testimonies of John, who just knows peace now, like he never knew before. Or if you were here last week, you would have heard about how um, God healed someone with chronic pain and freed someone else from anxiety. Ask any Christian here in the room today, and they will tell you that their lives are slowly being transformed by God. Because when you put your faith in Jesus, he gives you his Holy Spirit and enables you to change day after day after day to stop us rebelling from God, to become more like Jesus every day. You see, while Jesus' claim was exclusive in one way, in another way it's not. Because he said, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Who are the sinners? Me. You. You see, Jesus said that he came to save sinners, and that is all of us. All you have to do is put your faith in him. Christians who are here, it's only Jesus. It's only Jesus. Don't try and add other things to restore your relationship to God. It's only through him. Jesus is unequivocal here. He's saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You have to lean wholly on him, on his grace and his goodness and his righteousness. You cannot earn your way to God. You need to get that in you. And when you're sharing your faith, don't equivocate. Don't water down the words of Jesus. Tell people you have to leave your old life behind and you have to put your faith in Jesus Christ because he is the only way you are going to find what you need in this world. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, this has been a speedy whip through a whole bunch of apologetic arguments. So you might not come away from this thinking, well, now I definitely believe in Jesus. But what I want to provoke you to think is you have to respond to Jesus. You cannot be neutral on the claims of Jesus. You cannot be neutral on the claim, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You either have to say, he's right or he's wrong, and you've got to have a reason for it. He's not saying, be nice. He's saying, follow me. Maybe your next response is to go on the Alpha course. It's just 10 weeks long, uh, and 10, 10 evenings over 10 weeks. And there are videos that help you wrestle with some of these questions. It's a great opportunity. And in the grand scheme of things, that's not that much time. To, to deal with this life-changing truth. You need to have an answer for it. You cannot stay neutral. If he's wrong, then 90% of the people in this room are following a liar. But if he's right, it changes your entire world. And we all owe him our worship. And in return, he's going to give you light in darkness. He's going to give you satisfaction where you're hungry. He's going to give you peace where you're anxious. He's going to give you purpose where you're directionless. He's going to give you safety where you're in fear. And Christians, you can ask for that too. Because Jesus made all of those claims about himself too. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. He said, I and the Father are one. And when I look at the life of Jesus and the impact that he continues to make in my life today, I believe him. And what I want to ask is, do you?